Hello and welcome to the history of the cards. Episode 24 Christological Debates First, I would like to give a disclaimer about this episode before we start. There is going to be a lot of difficult theological concepts in the first one-third of this episode. I try to avoid theology when I can, but it is absolutely necessary to go through it to fully appreciate the next hundred years or so of the history of the Copts. To avoid any misunderstandings, I have posted the transcript of this episode on the website. If you are confused, reading it may help. As a reminder, last time we stopped with the introduction of Pope Cyril as a theologian and the controversial events of his early reign. If you remember, the first serious theological debate we encountered in our story was the struggle between San Athanasius and Arius slash Eusebius of Nicomedia. The issue back then was the relationship between members of the Trinity, especially what is the son relationship with the father. Eventually, the universal church sided for the most part on St. Athanasius' views that the son of the same essence of the father. With the Council of Constantinople also settling the issue of where the Holy Spirit fits. Now, by the time of Pope Cyril, Arianism was in a unique position. Alive and well within the Gothic population and other Germanic tribes who were living within the empire in a geographical sense, but not really a part of the empire culturally, as well as having Arians here and there who identified as Romans, but those Arians were mostly divided and unable to offer a unified theological message. So in a sense, there was still a need to continue elaborating on theological issues, and the debate continued and evolved into other issues. Between 415 AD and 428 AD, the purpose of Bob Cyril's writing was concentrated on countering Aryan thoughts and to refute Jewish beliefs and their traditional view of the Old Testament texts. His attacks on Judaism fit with a wider geopolitical campaign that took place throughout the empire and were not necessarily isolated actions. In 416 AD, imperial edicts stopped referring to Judaism as a religion and used the word superstition instead. By 423 AD, a decree was issued that prohibited the destruction of synagogues, but crucially also prohibited the building of new ones or repairing existing ones. Thus, the consistent thread in Pope Cyril's writing are how the Old Testament laws and stories are a foreshadow and a symbol of Christ's incarnation, and how all these Old Testament symbols and shadows lead to the figure of Jesus as the divine word of God, which serves as a refutation to both the Jews and the Arians. For example, in his earliest work, a book called Adoration in Spirit and in Truth, 
he answers one of the faithful who wonders about the meaning of the two verses, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, from Matthew 5, and the verse, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 4. There, he clearly expresses his position that the types and shadows of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the realities of the New Testament, which means practically that only the Orthodox Christians can explain the Bible as it is meant to be explained, as opposed to the Jews and the Aryans. Now, when I say Orthodox Christians, that is different from Orthodox and Catholics and Protestants that we think of nowadays. Orthodox in this sense is really the universal or the Catholic Church, since there is only one church in the empire. Anyway, Bob Cyril, using the allegory methods of origin, the salvation views of Athanasius, and the logic of Aristotle, he developed a very refined theological ideas that became the standard of which all others are measured by. If not in his own lifetime, then definitely after his death. To quote Bob Cyril himself, and how he thinks theologically, quote, First, we shall set out the historical events in a helpful fashion and explain these matters in a suitable way. Then lifting the same narrative out of type and shadow, we shall refashion it and give it an explanation which takes account of the mystery of Christ, having him as the goal. End quote. In his theological thought, how Christians are saved via the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the most important concern, which then shapes his views of Christ, i.e. Christology, which brings us to the conflicting views about Christ that will shape the history of the Copts, arguably to this day. Christology is the field of study about the nature, the role, and person of Jesus Christ. Almost everyone agreed back then, and now, that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. But unlike today, where this statement is basically good enough for almost everyone, in the 5th century and up until Islam in the 7th century, due to the heightened theological debates, Almost everyone felt the need to go beyond the simple statement that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. Was the person of Jesus Christ of one nature, or was it two natures? How were the natures connected? Was it by conjunction, or was it an indescribable unity? How about the will of Christ? One will, or two wills? And to take it all the way, is the term person even the right word to ask the question? To make the issue even more complicated, the theological debate would carry on using both Latin and Greek, not to mention there was also Coptic and Syriac, which would make it even more confusing. And the debate was not academic in nature either. You know, 
like two modern physicists debating string theory versus Big Bang models of the formation of the universe. No, the debates were carried with personal rivalries, political consideration, and above all, a belief that only one view can be correct, and all other must be wrong and heretical and must be suppressed. The differentiation between what is speculative and what is a fundamental truth was not part of that discussion, at least as far as I can tell. Anyway, when Bob Searle was writing, it was before the breakout of the Christological debates, and thus his use of certain terms was fluid, which made his writing to be one of the most abused and also cited theological writing of all time. Once he died, everybody claimed that Bob Searle supported their Christological view by quoting a passage of his writing. His commentaries on the Bible were copied and preserved as the standard to which others are measured by, and new commentaries were written commenting on his commentaries, a practice still done even to this day. I'm going to introduce some of these fluid terms now and how Bob Cyril treated them. They would be useful to the narrative for the next few episodes, so bear with me. Also, I'm afraid I will have to use the Greek term, which means I will probably mess up their pronunciation. So my advance apologies. First, there was the term Usea, meaning nature. Bob Cyril used this term to refer to the reality common to all members of the Trinity. Then the term hypostasis, which means an underlying reality. Bob Searle uses this term to refer to the individual existence proper to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Also there is physesis, which he uses in a way equivalent to Osea, and there is prospon or person equivalent to Bob Searle's usage of hypostasis. So a statement he would approve of would be, the trinity is of one Osea with three hypostasis, or one physesis with three prospon. I hope you are not confused yet, because this next part is where it gets all confusing. When Bob Searle talks about the trinity, the above definitions hold i.e. Osea or physesis is different than hypostasis. But crucially, when he talks about Christology, physesis and hypostasis are used interchangeably, and prosbon and hypostasis mean different things. Prosbon there equals to an actual person, while hypostasis is used as the nature of this person. This five-minute introduction on Christology is needed to understand the fundamental theological conflict between Alexandria and Constantinople that will dominate our narrative for the next few episodes. Now that we set the ground for Bob Searle's theological legacy, let's go back to the narrative. In 427 AD, while Bob Searle was well established as the leading theological voice of the East, the Bishop of Constantinople have died, 
leaving the seat vacant. Unlike Bob Zephilis and Bob Peter II before him, Bob Searle did not seem to intervene in the selection process. Constantinople at this point, as mentioned before, was full of competing factions and they all tried to advance their own candidate. It also had its own unique flavor of monasticism. Urban monks living in monasteries inside the city. Those monks were highly influential and many of them formed connections within the palace and their voices usually reached the emperor. To avoid alienating any factions and to try to get a candidate where everyone is open to work with, the emperor decided to look for someone outside of Constantinople. His choice lay in a Syrian monk from Antioch named Nostorius. On paper, the plan was reasonable. However, Constantinople's politics were vicious, and Nestorius, as we will see, was way out of his league to be able to handle the politics of the capital. First was his zeal to eliminate all whom he considered heretics. In his speech accepting the office, he proclaimed, Give me, O Emperor, the earth burst of heretics, and I will give you the heaven in return. Assist me in destroying the heretics, and I will assist you in vanquishing the Persians. Within five days of his start, he started eliminating all the unorthodox elements in the capital. And it wasn't in any sort of a subtle divide and conquer way, or a careful mix of carrots and sticks. No, Nestorius went all fire and brimstone which earned him some powerful enemies and the nickname Nestorius the Incendiary. I suspect so, like Bob Searle's early years, he would have been okay have he not alienated two very powerful elements in the capital political scene and only concentrated on the heretics. The two elements were the urban monks of Constantinople and Augusta, Bulgaria. Bulgaria was the emperor's older sister and the power behind his throne. The urban monks were something new that Nestorius had not dealt with in Syria. Like Egypt, the Syrian monks were supposed to be locked away from society in a deep desert, or at least in the outskirts of town. Not in Constantinople, so. The monks there were inside the city and went back and forth between the palace, the city itself, and the monastery. Uncomfortable at the sight of monks walking about in the city, and perhaps wishing to consolidate his power and jealous of their influence and independence, he decreed that the monks should stay inside their monasteries and not go into the city. When some monks ignored his orders, he immediately excommunicated them, which turned the vast majority of the monastic community against him. His worst mistake, so, came with his dealing with the Augusta. The Augusta Bulgaria was a religious woman, living the life of a nun, or more accurately, a consecrated virgin in the palace. She was a powerful woman, 
in the civil and the religious sphere of the empire, and ruled in her own right, while her brother did not reach adulthood yet. And even after he did, she was still very influential. When Nestorius became the bishop, he was offended of how much power she had in the church as a woman. Thus, one of the first things he did when he arrived was to remove her portrait from the Church of the Apostles in Constantinople. Then, just to make sure that the message is well received, a special robe that Bulgaria have donated for liturgical use was also removed, and a new one was to be used. The worst offense, though, is that the next Easter, when Bulgaria attempted to enter the sanctuary to receive communion, Nostorius closed the door and did not allow her to go inside the sanctuary. His position was that only clergy and the emperor were allowed inside, and no women were allowed in. Bulgaria, who have been entering and taking communion this way since she can remember, was furious, and asked the logical question of why she cannot go in as a woman. Have not a woman give birth to God after all? Nostorius, dismissing her, told her that she has given birth to Satan, and stuck to his grounds. Now that Nestorius has pissed off everybody who mattered, it wouldn't be much longer until his demise. Within a year of his elevation, two competing factions in Constantinople came to Nestorius and asked a seemingly innocent question. Should the Blessed Mary be called Theodokos, she who have given birth to God, or Anthropotokos, she who have given birth to man? Remember, almost everyone at this point fully believed that Jesus was fully man and fully God, so the question was reasonable. Nestorius, being a middle ground, answered that neither was wrong, but the title Christokos, she who have given birth to Christ, is the accurate title. A couple of weeks later, his position became more extreme when a priest that was close to him preached a fiery sermon in the Church of the Apostles, proclaiming that, quote, Let no one call Mary Theodokos, for Mary was only a human being, and it is impossible that God should be born of a human being. End quote. The average men and women attending, used to hearing and saying the title Theodokos, did not appreciate the change, and according to the ancient sources, the change troubled many of the clergy and the laymen. By Christmas of 428 AD, a priest who was close to Bulgaria, in front of Nestorius, gave a sermon denouncing all of who did not wish to give St. Mary the title Theodokos. When he finished, the crowd loved it and Nestorius was visibly uncomfortable. Not to be undone so, he systemically began to dedicate all his sermons against the title and the Christology behind it. To quote one of his sermons, that God passed through the version Christokos, I am taught, by the divine scriptures, but that God was born from her, 
I have not been taught anywhere. Those who call Mary Syracuse are heretics. Opposition in the capital reached the average citizen, and even posters and pamphlets were circulating accusing Nestorius of heresy. Now, as the leading theologian of the East, Bob Searle naturally gave his opinion, but aware of the controversial legacy of his uncle when he opposed Jean Chrysostom, he proceeded very carefully and only sticking to the theology and addressing his opinion to the Egyptian monks in a well-circulated letter. He insisted on the title Syracuse. Anything other than this title calls into question the divinity of Christ. He also recalled the legacy of St. Athanasius and his use of that term. Finally, he addresses why the title of St. Mary affects the basic foundation of salvation according to the Athanasian views. To quote Russell Norman's book, Cyril of Alexandria, the title safeguards the true union of God and man in Christ because it excludes the idea that Christ is either merely a God-bearing man or else a God who simply uses the body as an instrument. When the letter was brought to Constantinople, Nestorius wasn't very happy, and he let Pope Cyril know that instead of writing a public letter, he should have reached out privately to him first. Bob Searle responded that his letter was in response to the issue reaching Egypt, and it was his duty to correct wrong beliefs that enters Egypt. Not to mention, he adds, the Bob in Rome was also planning to write something. Now, Bob Searle, throughout his reign, have managed to cultivate an excellent relationship with Rome. Cemented by the restoration of Jean Chrysostom, as we discussed last week, while Nestorius, as it was typical for him, managed to anger Rome by receiving a group that the Roman bishop considered heretical and listening to what they had to say. Anyway, doubling down on his antagonistic behavior, Nestorius got some Alexandrians who had a grudge against Pope Cyril and proceeded to elevate their complaints to the emperor. With this development, Pope Cyril took the issue seriously and started an international campaign against Nestorius. And as his theology and writings were vastly superior, that became the cornerstone of his campaign. Letters systemically refuting Nestorius' views were sent to various bishops throughout the empire, as well as to the imperial family. Pope Cyril, realizing the influence of Bulgaria on the emperor wife, he sent them different letters addressed to them personally than the one he sent to the emperor, Theodosius, which alienated the emperor as he felt that Cyril is trying to enlist Bulgaria to his cause, independent of him. The relationship between emperor and pope would be tense, and if Theodosius was not a weak emperor dominated by his court, things would have been vastly different. 
as a result of this campaign, by August 430 AD, a synod of Italian bishops excommunicated Nestorius and communicated to Pope Cyril to enforce the decision of the synod in the east. Pressure was also building up from the monks in Constantinople, who nagged the emperor to call a universal council. At this point, in an act of pure political stupidity, Nestorius decides to go ahead and support a universal council as well. Perhaps he thought his theological argument would win the day, or maybe he thought that Theodosius would finally assert himself and support him. He failed to see the clear, obvious facts that he had too many enemies and that Pope Cyril was a formidable theological opponent. He could have worked out something so, had the council been bland in Constantinople or another friendly place like Antioch, his home city. Alas, it was Bulcaria's turn to take part, and through her influence, the city of Ephesus was picked for the council's location. A city whose bishop was hostile to Nestorius, and its main church, undoubtedly where the council will take place, was dedicated to none other than St. Mary the Theodokos. Before I end this week's episode, I would like to briefly go over the Christological consequences of the title of St. Mary, and what exactly was Pope Cyril's concerns, and what was Nestoria saying. A word of disclaimer, so. What exactly was the nuances of Nestoria's teaching is debated among academics. At one extreme, there are some who assert that he was orthodox and was completely misunderstood. At the other extreme, there are those who assert that he clearly did not hail the figure of Jesus as fully divine, and thus he was just a different flavor of Aryan theology. What I am presenting here is based on Russell Norman's book, Sir of Alexandria, which I think is a middle ground and a fair representation. According to Russell Norman, both sides here agreed to the Nicene Creed, that is, Christ was truly God and truly man. Their disagreement was basically about the nature of Christ masquerading as in the title of St. Mary. Pope Cyril, rooted in the salvation ideas of St. Athanasius, did not accept that a Christ who was the result of an extrinsic union, or in the words of Nestorius, a conjunction between the two natures of divinity and humanity was capable of achieving salvation. Thus was his insistence at the title Mother of God and the associated one divine and human nature of Jesus Christ. Nestorius, for his part, was concerned that a Christ that has one nature, as Pope Cyril seemed to be preaching, would not be fully man. Thus, his refusal of the Theodokos title. Now, for the careful listener, notice how the word nature slipped in there? Well, that will come back to haunt this podcast for a while. Next week, the events of the Council of Ephesus will unfold, and despite the odds, Nestorius would be partially successful. I mean, Nestorian Christians would survive, 
and do extremely well for a long time. Arguably, they still are around to this day. Thank you for listening, and farewell, and until next week.